Hi, my name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here at Vernon First Baptist Church. It's my privilege to look at Revelation 11 with you, the two witnesses and the measuring of the temple. Just what is John seeing here and what does it mean to the early church and to us? I think it's vitally important. Uh, we take a little longer in the sermon to look at it, but there is a powerful meaning that comes out of it. So stick around, stick through it, and uh, I think you'll appreciate it. Um, we have a bit of audio echo at the, the first part of the sermon, but we do rectify it partway through. So hang on through that. Bless you as you listen. Good morning. Scripture reading today is from Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14. I was given a reed at a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because, it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The word of the Lord. Well, we are going to talk about good news today. You might say, didn't you just hear that passage? Where's the good news? Well, we're going to talk about good news now. When you have the opportunity to tell someone about something else, their favorite thing, that's being a witness. Now, who loves to tell others about their favorite thing? Nobody? You don't like to tell anybody about a favorite thing? Maybe a favorite, uh, a favorite hockey team that's doing fairly well right now? I know they lost, but it was an overtime. They got a point still yesterday. And they're top of the league again. It's incredible. Or maybe someone has told you good news 
told you, or just something, about uh, Super Bowl, and maybe it was even about the game, but most likely it was about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Have you heard enough of that? Yes. Well, maybe you're going to hear a little more in a bit, let's see. But sometimes we get a little skeptical about someone when they are a little oversharing, right? Are they trying to trap us in something? Is this a pyramid scheme? Right? Is this a timeshare that we're going to have to listen to for five hours? What is this person wanting to get me into? And sometimes it seems that they have, you know, someone's oversharing too much, but they just lost reason in order to believe in what they have believed in. Sharing the good news, being a witness, is something the followers of Jesus have done since those first 12 disciples. And it's been known as witnessing, being a witness about what we've experienced. It's also been termed evangelism. Evangel meaning good news. So sharing that good news with others, the truth of Jesus. And unfortunately, more and more people don't feel like what we might share is good news at all. Isn't that true? So how can this change? Can our witness be meaningful again? I think this is some of the questions that this passage answers for us. In the midst of such an intense portion of Revelation, there are some surprising applicable insights for us on this topic. So I want us to pause and pray together as we consider this. Jesus, once again, we ask by your Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see your truth, hearts to grasp it, what you have for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, there's a number of questions that come up for me when I read this passage, maybe for you too. I tempted to play Revelation Feud and see if we could get which questions come up for you. Are they the same as somebody else? Which one's the, the biggest question? You know, uh, survey says. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to take time for that. But there, hopefully there's some questions that came up for you. This chapter, well, the last few, it seems like each one has its own designation. It's scariest. It was the last one for chapter 9. And then chapter 11 is known as one of the hardest chapters to interpret. Uh, and I've been going through a number of different books, and I brought up Daryl, uh, my friend and mentor, uh, called Discipleship on the Edge, an exposition journey through the book of Revelation. And I highly recommend this book. It's an incredible, incredible unpacking of Scripture, of Revelation. And he says... Every commentator I know says this is the most difficult text to interpret. It is densely packed and subtle. But when it gets a hold on us, he adds, it empowers costly discipleship. 
So we're going to spend a little time going through the text and seeing what answers are for the questions that we might have. And then we're going to take a look at how this applies. For it applies to the early church. Remember, once again, it applies to them and then to us as well. So let's look at verse 1. Let's go back. John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. So there's two passages, and we can talk a little bit about how so much of Revelation echoes back to the Old Testament, remember? More, more, there's more Old Testament passages echoed, referenced, than you can shake a stick at. It's incredible. And there's two here that echo back. To one is the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, where the temple is measured with painstaking detail. Did I mention eight chapters? Eight chapters. With the final goal of all of that measuring is the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. This main emphasis of the Lord being there in the city. And in Zechariah 2, there's a similar measuring that happens with the sense that God is protecting the city. It goes on where it says, many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. This is that correct. And so here in our vision that John has, he's told to measure the temple, period, pretty much. There's no detailed chapters of instruction going from room to room, etc. Except for the altar and the worshippers. And then in verse 2 it says, leave out the outer courts. We'll talk about that in a second. But do you remember that there was the cry of the worshippers coming from the altar? And they cried out, Reminded the altar, how long? And that's why the, the measuring includes the altar and the worshippers. So the question is, what does this temple represent? Some speculate that it must be a new temple, a third temple that will be built, that Jerusalem will be chosen again, as Zechariah says in that verse 12. But don't forget verse 11 in Zechariah. Even here, way back then in Zechariah, verse 11, where he says, Many nations will be joined with the Lord and become my people. Well, that's not how the temple in Jerusalem works. Not many nations. We see that Jerusalem was chosen when the Lion of Judah came to claim his rightful place as the king of the Jews and did so as the slain lamb of God. When Jesus came, when he showed that he was the true Messiah, the Christ, the new king. And the many nations that arose from the outpouring of the Spirit from Pentecost on became 
the new temple where God promised to live among them, filled not by the Shekinah presence in the Holy of Holies of the first and second temples, but by God's Spirit present in each of us. We studied this in 1 Peter, if you were here to remember, where Peter tells us, you yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house, house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul says this even clearer, which doesn't surprise me when it comes to Peter. I think he had some help, of course. But Paul says it even clearer. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and That God's Spirit dwells in your midst? As he writes to the Corinthians, they were nowhere near Jerusalem. And he's writing that to the church, universal through all time. Takes it even further in Ephesians 2, saying that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when John is told, in this apocalyptic vision, in apocalyptic style, he's told to measure the temple. We can begin to understand the temple is a symbol, just as Peter and Paul wrote about it, a symbol for the church. John is to measure the church. Verse 2, he says, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city 42 months. The Gentiles here are a symbol of those who oppose God. The Roman Empire and its greatness, those who have oppressed and persecuted the church and will continue to trample on the holy city for 42 months, even while the measured people of God are sealed, are ultimately protected. Now, 42 months... 42 is a highly symbolic number in Scripture. And it is here as well. And referring back to Daryl, in his book, he talks about how all the numbers in John's revelation are symbols. 42 being no different. Now, what, do they, what does it mean, 42? What do these numbers mean? We have to be careful about speculating because this can lead to some intense ideas. Now, I don't know who is number 42 on Kansas City or San Francisco 49ers, but I do know who 87 is. That's Travis Kelsey on uh, Kansas City. Have you heard about the Super Bowl, anyone? A few. You've heard about the Super Bowl this year, you've probably heard about Taylor Swift. And have you heard that there's even potential controversies regarding her, the Super Bowl, and the upcoming election later this year. If you haven't, don't spend too much time looking into it, but there are. Now, let me just explain quickly how some people are coming to this. Her favorite number is 13, and there's lots of reasons for that, and you can look that up and see why her favorite number is 13. This is the 58th 
Super Bowl. What happens when you add five and eight together? Some of you need some help from your neighbor. Thirteen. They are playing who? The 49ers. What happens when you add four and nine together? The teams are the first seed and the third seed. One and three. Thirteen. Now Taylor, Taylor, Saturday night was in Japan for a concert. How long does it take to fly from Japan? Approximately 13 hours. Big. Was she even going to make it? Well, I can rest assured she did the concert, flew back through Saturday, and arrived in L.A. Saturday night. I don't know. She's magic. But she's in, she arrived in time. And guess what? How many games has she attended so far? Nope. Only 12. Today's is? Today's is the 13th. Like I said, we're not even going to talk about how it relates to the election, but sometimes people can tend to do this type of thing with the numbers here, and you have to do it a little bit. You have to say, okay, let's unpack it, but when someone is doing, as it's known as numerology, unpacking the numbers, I think it, makes, it helps for it to make sense what would make sense to the early church, to who this was written. What makes sense and not get too fantastical about it? Let's take a look at 42. When those who knew their Old Testament heard 42, they would hear a couple things. They would hear that that's the number of stages in Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. It's also the number of generations from Abraham to Jesus listed in Matthew. That's the 14. Comes to 42. 42... 42 months is also three and a half years, which we'll hear, and approximately, a little over, but approximately 1,260 days, which we'll also hear. Now, Elijah preached repentance while the rain did not fall for three and a half years. That was historical fact. In Daniel, we hear of a time, two times, and a half a time, one, two, and a half, one half. That adds up to three and a half. Now, three and a half, if you consider three and a half as half of, well done. You guys are doing great at your math today. Now, number seven, we've looked at this a lot already. It's the number of completeness or wholeness. When we talk about the seven churches, it's written to all the churches. So when we look at something like three and a half, this is not the whole. The idea here being that it's a partial period of time. If seven were to be the whole period of time, three and a half would be a partial period of time. Is, there, is, is John saying 42 months exactly, that's what we're talking about, or is it a symbol of this partial period of time? Daryl would say, all the numbers are symbolic. We have to look at it. Now, some would take this timeline of three and a half or 42 months literally. But throughout history, the vast majority of theologians 
see this as a symbol, this three and a half, a partial period of time that the church, the new temple of God, will have the honor of suffering for Christ during persecution until he returns. And that's coming up later in the vision. on to verse 3. I will appoint my two witnesses. So who are these two witnesses? That's something else that we could speculate about. If we were to consider them as two people, the debate has raged on over the years as to who these two might be. If there could be two people. Is it Elijah and Elisha? Is it James and John? Peter and Paul, maybe Enoch and Elijah, as those two never died, they were taken up. So maybe it's them. Maybe it's Zerubbabel and Joshua. They were referenced in this passage as the two olive trees in Zechariah. Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua. Others would say Moses and Elijah, and there's a good sense for that as well, which we'll see. But if we take this in context, we might see something a little different. John has taken the scroll from the mighty angel. He's eaten it and told that he has to prophesy again. Dan asked me last week after after I preached on this, he said, well, have you eaten the scroll? I said, I've been eating this scroll all week. Still eating it. He was told that He'd eat it, and then he'd have to prophesy again. The immediate next passage, we see two witnesses being sent out to preach, to prophesy. It's not John. It's two witnesses. And that they are, verse verse 4 says, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Once again, these are references back to a vision that Zechariah had. Though in his vision, he only saw one lampstand. It had seven lamps, not surprisingly. So if we take the larger context, here in Revelation, where did we see lampstands before? How many? There were seven lampstands in the throne room, representing the seven churches. How many of which of those seven were faithful churches that didn't have a harsh correction? There were two. Two that were faithful, without compromise. Two faithful churches representing the faithful church of the Lamb. The olive trees representing the oil of the Spirit. Two faithful witnesses sent out To give witness. As witnesses, are they the ones on trial? If you're a witness, are you on trial? No. No, they're not the defendants. So who is on trial here? Can I get a witness? I'm going to ask you to start singing. It's the Lamb who's on trial. Jesus himself is the one on trial. And these witnesses are called 
to witness that he indeed is the true king, the one who offers life and life abundant. So these two witnesses, two witnesses, of course, even Jesus affirms the Deuteronomic law when he says in John 8, 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people Confirmed by another. One confirmed by another. And we do see echoes in this vision, images of Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets with the power of God pouring out of them. So most would say these two witnesses, this is written to John as a pastor of the early churches. That they would understand through these images of the lampstands. That this is referring to them as the church. His witness in in the Roman Empire. and That they are empowered by the Spirit. To go out and give that witness. To defend their Lord. Now, as they go out in the power of the Spirit, this is where the fire-breathing, the plague-causing, water-blooding part of the witnesses come from. It's the same power of Elijah and Moses flowing through the people of God. And you might say, well, could this actually, if it was two witnesses, two people, fire-breathing? causing plagues wherever they want. If we take it too literally, it seems a little ridiculous. One of the new Super Bowl commercials has one man saying he wishes that he could breathe fire, and he's breathing fire, right? because it just is so wonderfully ridiculous. Now, what would these visions mean? It would mean that they're empowered with the same power that Moses to bring the plagues that Elijah, who could bring fire down, the same power that they had is now in the church. The witnesses that go out to defend their Lord. Let's remember which book we're reading, Apocalyptic Imagery. Uh, when it comes to fire breathing, I'm not so sure that I'd be into that. I was tempted to see if I could do a little bit today. And I thought, um, maybe not. If I was one of the witnesses. But we all are. I love, actually, Proverbs 25. It uses the power of fire. If your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Blow fire on him? No, you give him food. Give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord will reward you. Our, our Lord is one that gives, loves enemies, in spite of them. So this imagery of witnesses going around, breathing, fire breathing, burning people up, that's not our God. Yes, have they oppressed? Have they persecuted? Will there be judgment on them? Yes, but that's up to God. That's up to God. We, we're to heap burning coals on their heads, 
by loving them in spite of how they treat us. Now, I know Hannah asked me, she said, last week you didn't tell us about the sweetness of eating the scroll and it being bitter in the stomach. That was a question she still had. And I said, that's because we're going to talk about it today. Because I think it's, I think it's inextricably tied. Chapter 10, chapter 11. The church, as God's witness in our world, will experience the sweetness of offering the good news as they take it in, as we, as we eat the word. It's sweet to us. But they'll also experience the bitterness of rejection as they seek to offer it to others. Now, not always. Some will respond joyfully as they understand the good news. And I think that's helpful for us, a challenge for us to make sure that they hear it as good news. But some won't. Some will not receive it. People who reject the message tastes like bitterness to us as we're rejected alongside it. But they are not the real enemy, are they? If we look at verse 7, it tells us who the real enemy is. A new character on the scene. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them. There is a spiritual opposition to the people of God living out the love and truth of Jesus. We can't deny it. The early church knew it all too well. They knew that it may just cost them their lives. We don't understand that quite the same, do we? It might cause us a sneer. It might cause us a, oh, brother. For them, they understood and for them to see that the real enemy in John's vision is him for the first time here. This is the real enemy, not those that are, that are resisting them, that are oppressing them. And we're going to see a lot more of this beast later, so we're not going to talk about him now. Verses 8 and 9 says that their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. I hope you have questions coming up. What, what, what? And for three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Once again, we see that this is much more widespread than just Jerusalem. This tribulation will not be forever. Figuratively, we say it's a partial period of time, not a complete period of time. Three and a half years, figuratively. But what about the shame of those who are killed, their bodies lying in the public square in the great city? As horrible as that may feel, for them it was a complete desecration. You could bury the body right away. I think we wouldn't be too uh, excited about it either. But it would feel it's like only three and a half days. Three and a half days. Not years. Three and a half days and then things are going to be made right. John sees those who are gloating over the death of the witnesses. They celebrate it like Christmas, giving gifts to each other. And the vision says that this is in the great city, Sodom and Egypt, which is clearly figurative language. How can it be both? 
and also where Jesus was crucified. The idea here is to represent the great city as Rome, the great city. Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem, all were within the Roman Empire. The great city with the idolatry and greediness of Sodom, as well as its oppression and abusiveness of Egypt. It's in the great city of the Roman Empire that Jesus came to offer his life, and they took it. And in this vision, the witnesses give their lives as well. Yet after, and it's clear for them, there will be a day when the church is resurrected, just like Jesus, and their sacrifice, just like the lambs, will be vindicated and have an incredible impact of life. And we're going to see that shortly. Now, there's, there's a temptation. I know I feel it. A temptation for us to get our backs up when things in our society don't seem to be going the Christian way. You feel it? Christians get put down. And people who are supposedly Christian are responding to others in hateful ways. Powerful. Angry. They might even use a passage like this to justify their anger and their spewing of hate. I'm calling down a plague. I'm spitting fire. But that is not the way of the Lamb. We are to live in the power of the Spirit. And that might even surprise us at times. Commentarians would say that this great city is every city, every group of people, every empire that is not walking in the way of the Lamb. Look at Russia right now. Ukraine, even Israel, Gaza, tens of thousands dead, thousands of children. Right. How would the early church take this? Well, they would know the Greek word for witness is martus, where we get our word martyr. As in, to die for our faith. The way of Jesus, he said to take up his cross, and it may be their way. The way of victory is not to overpower others, but to show them our lives are held by the Lamb. That we have a much greater power, greater than death or the fear of it. Verse 10 says that the witnesses were killed because they tormented others, which is fascinating. How, how could they be tormenting others? Well, the reality is the good news that we offer brings life everlasting, but it's also the worst news for the one who wants to hold on to all the control. For the one who wants to pretend to play God, for that is all we can do is pretend, good news of God's grace freely offered 
tormenting until they understand God's love for them and receive it freely. Jesus exposed our idolatry, all of us, and continues to, but invites us all to live as we are created to, as Jesus showed us. Remember, it's Jesus that's on trial here, and we just have to witness to his love for us and the life that he offers. We're not the ones on witness. On, we're not the ones on trial. Jesus is the one who challenges us and others. We don't need to go around picking fights, just offering him. All right. There are just a few things that I want to pull out here. You said, well, Pastor, you said this applies to us. How does it give us a picture of how to renew our witness in this world? Remember, again, that this is Pastor John, beloved disciple of Jesus, receiving a vision from Jesus, about Jesus, of Jesus, that he's to pass on to the church to empower them, not only to survive the oppression and persecution they're experiencing, but to thrive in spite of it. And, and they did. You know our history, we're around because they didn't crumple under the oppression and persecution. They thrived. And I believe the power of this vision that got a hold of them, and they can get a hold of us too. Three main points that we're going to look at quickly to these witnesses that can be overlooked if we're not careful. I love how Rachel Held Evans says, it seems most those most likely to miss God's work in the world are those most convinced they know exactly what to look for. The ones who expect God to play by the rules. What might God be up to for us in this? First, something that I heard in our reading, we haven't looked at it again since, is that these witnesses were clothed in sackcloth, which is a symbol of repentance, a symbol of lament that they lived in repentance, they didn't just preach it. This one's, this one's a little bit hard. This one's not part of the sweetness. It's a little bit part of the bitterness of swallowing the scroll. I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Again, the partial period of time, the three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was this image of living in a continual repentance. As the church, we're not to live like we have everything right. Yes, we have the truth of Jesus offered to us. But as examples to all around us, we're to live as those who are always turning to Jesus for the abundant life that he offers instead of the shadow of life we find when it's in our own control. Part of being a witness to Jesus is recognizing that we are always learning to become more like him, growing in his love and his holiness, his care of others, and repenting when we get things wrong. Over this Christmas, I had a friend call me on some of my own defensiveness and how I was treating others because of some of my own personal insecurities. I needed to own some of that, my own pride and my ego, to repent and I, once again, turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, 
Fill me with your presence. Don't let me respond to others out of my ego and defensiveness. An example more to us as a whole church. Last Sunday night, we had a great international dinner, great international meal. Who was here for that? Wasn't it amazing? I can still taste some of that food. It was so good. It was amazing. And uh, we sang a bunch of great songs. You sounded awesome. I know someone said, wow, I've never heard of Canada quite like that. It was great. And we sang some wonderful songs together. Edelweiss at the end. When, I don't know how we all became Austrian, but that's okay. We're all a little bit Austrian after seeing Sound of Music, right? But we sang a classic kid song, Jesus Loves the Little Children of the World, known as, as a very inclusive song, singing about all the kids, that Jesus loves all the kids of the world. The classic words of that song are red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. And when it was written, I can just sense the spirit of including all, all little kids. But a few of us recognized the reality of some of those words, especially red and yellow. Today, they've become racial slurs about ethnicity. The fact that using them, even in an innocent kid song, caused people some pain that night as we sang it, as they saw those words on the screen. We confirmed that with some people and, and apologized for it. And as we've talked about it as a leadership, we said, boy, let's make sure we change. Let's not, the song is a beautiful song, but you can do an uh, alternate lyric right there that's just as beautiful for the sake of love for others. So as a church, we did a turning. A turning, a repenting. For repenting means a turning toward the truth and love of Jesus. It's easy enough to change the words to a song. It's harder to let our, our hard hearts become attuned to Jesus if we get bitter about it. We have to continue to keep softening our hearts to Jesus. That's the symbol of sackcloth, of living in a daily repentance. Not just saying, we've got it all right and you have it all wrong. Uh, we get it wrong every day too and we're moving towards Jesus. Secondly, the church, as witnesses, has the power of the Spirit. That's the symbol here of acting out in these Elijah and Moses-like ways. God is going before us wherever we go. We can have the confidence to share that love and goodness, the abundant life we found in Jesus. And I see this as an example of opening up to the power of the Spirit, looking for God's wisdom, clarity, recognizing that God has gone before us, working all around us. There might be times where we need to act in powerful ways, what is right and good may be calling out injustice. People will see God's power in action. At other times, they may see God's power in how we become more loving and kind, more patient, joyful, peaceful, become people of self-control as the fruit of God's empowering presence, His Spirit, comes out of us. All right, I said three things. Come to the third one, right? 
Here it is. People come to faith through the witness's sacrifice. Through our sacrifice, people come to faith. Well, what, where's, where do you find that, Pastor? Part of the second woe. You can't avoid verse 13, where it says, At that very hour, once the, 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 the witnesses are vindicated, resurrected up, people, terrified, all their celebrations stopped. They're like, what, what happened? At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified. And we've already gone through a couple major earthquakes so far. And perhaps this is one of them echoed. Or more likely it's the great one that is prophesied by Ezekiel and Zechariah, which we've heard a couple times already. They have prophesied that there will be a great earthquake at the end, this apocalyptic language of the day of the Lord. Along with Moses and Elijah, they're echoed and echoed. Yoda would say, packed full this passage is of Old Testament echoes. But when the earthquake hits, 7,000 die. The Greek is clear to say it's men of power or fame, named, named men. The early church would feel once again that God is acting to uphold justice time and time again as we've seen. But there's even more here. Why 7,000? Well, in 1 Kings 19, right after Elijah called down fire from heaven to burn up the offering. And God is vindicated. God was on trial then too. Elijah the witness. We see that God spares 7,000 people out of all those who worship Baal. Only 7,000 spared. God's prophecy of judgment to Israel in Amos is that of only one-tenth of their army will be spared. 1,000 march out, only 100 will remain. And in Isaiah 6, the holy, holy, holy passage, where Isaiah had his great vision, he realizes his own sinfulness, and the Lord promises judgment again that says only a tenth will remain. But here in Revelation, did you see it? A tenth of the city were killed. 7,000. The rest, the survivors, it says, and the survivors gave glory to the God of heaven. So here in Revelation, it's reversed. These survivors, the nine-tenths, only a tenth die. The nine-tenths, the 90% are saved and give glory to God. Daryl Johnson, once again. As all of this reversal is due to the faithful witness of the witnesses. The witnesses get killed. But because of the way they die, nine-tenths of the great city is redeemed. Another theologian, John Caird, says it this way. Whereas retributive punishment had failed to bring men to repentance, the death of the martyrs would succeed. 
incredible. So this vision is more than a picture into the future. It's an opening of our eyes, of the eyes of the early church and of ours, to how Jesus is working in this world and inviting us to follow him. Follow him, the slain lamb. The lamb that gave his life. And honestly, Revelation doesn't hide the truth. It may cost the early church everything. It may cost us our lives. But the true life that Jesus offers is worth it. They knew it. They changed the world with their witness. May we follow in their shoes. Jesus, we ask that you would once again help us grasp the vision that you have for us. That we as your people are called to live out your love, your truth, your goodness, your holiness in this world. That people would see in us, in our changed lives, your good news. Come to know you. Lord, show us what it might cost us. Show us that it's worth anything that it would. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, in the Lord's great holiness, he causes us by his spirit to be his witnesses. Tom Wright says, suddenly, out of the smoke and fire of the earlier chapters, a vision is emerging. A vision of the Creator God as the God of mercy, grieving over the rebellion and corruption of the world, but determined to rescue and restore it. And doing so by the faithful death of the Lamb, and now through the faithful death of the Lamb's prophetic followers. I invite you to open your hands for our closing blessing and benediction. As you go from the service, know that you go in the power of the Lamb. Though it may cost you everything, His true life is worth it. There's no need to be afraid, but to go out and be His witnesses in His power. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.